Well, it is a joy for me to be back with you here in Steadfast this morning, and uh, welcome to the month of November. Thank you to Andrew and Sam for already greeting all of us and greeting all of our new visitors this morning. You can tell there was a time change because there's a lot more people here. So uh, it's always nice to fall back in November, so it's just a, a joy to get to talk a little bit about church history with you this morning. And we okay on the mic? Yeah, sort of? Okay, good. If I talk quietly, does that help? (laughs) All right. We're continuing in our series on Forerunners of the Faith, a look at church history. And for those of you who are new visitors, Uh, Just so you know, this is a little bit unusual for what we do in fellowship groups. We normally take a text of Scripture and exposit that passage of Scripture. That's what our church is known for, is looking to the Word of God and preaching through the text. But uh, Pastor Brian Biedebach has invited me to do a little bit of a series in church history here in Steadfast. And so we're actually doing something that's a little bit less than normal for what would happen in Steadfast on an average Sunday. So I feel like I'm not normally here in Steadfast, but I feel like I have to give full disclosure for the new guests so that you don't judge Steadfast just on the basis of what happens here this morning. It's usually way better than this. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay, no, I'm not fishing for affirmation. I don't need Oz. I just want to make sure that I'm being, you know, up front and and full disclosure here. Uh, But I am excited about what we get to talk about today. Uh, Here we are already in the month of November. Five days ago, right? Today's November 5th. Five days ago was Reformation Day, October 31st. I know our nation celebrates it as Halloween. Halloween means the eve of All Hallowed's or All Saints Day. November 1st was All Saints Day, so October 31st is the eve of All Saints Day, and we call it Halloween. But it is the day that, according to at least tradition, Martin Luther, back in the year 1517, took his 95 theses and nailed them to a castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and launched the Protestant Reformation. And so Reformation Day actually is celebrated in places like Germany as a national holiday, And here in the United States, for those of us who know about the Reformation and love the Reformation, we like to talk about Halloween as Reformation Day. And for me, as someone who teaches church history and loves to talk about church history, I just assume that the reason kids are dressing up and going door to door and asking for candy is because they love the Reformation too. So, right? Trick or treat us. It all all works. It all works. Here is... But the reason I bring up ancient history from five days ago and from 500 years ago is because when we think about the Protestant Reformation as those who are Protestant evangelical Christians, what we love about the Reformation, besides the stories and besides just the fun of celebrating a day that commemorates that event, we love more than any of that the convictions that are drawn from Scripture that fueled Martin Luther and John Calvin and other reformers, convictions that we share with them. And at the heart of those convictions would be really three main priorities. These three priorities characterize the Protestant Reformation, and they characterize believers prior to the Protestant Reformation, which is why I'm bringing them up this morning. The first of those priorities is the lordship or the headship of Jesus Christ as the head of the church, that Christ alone is the head of the church. And if Christ is the head of the church, then a second priority that flows out of that is that his word is the authority for the church. So if Christ is the head of the church, then his word is the authority for the church. And if his word is the authority for the church, then the gospel that is articulated on the pages of Scripture must be the true gospel. 
And when we look to the Word of God, we see that the gospel, the good news of salvation, is that sinners can be justified. They can be declared righteous in the sight of God, not on the basis of their works, which God views as filthy rags, but rather by grace, meaning a gift, through faith, which Ephesians 2.8 says is also a gift, and that faith looks to and clings to the person and work of Jesus Christ because of who he is and what he accomplished on the cross. So we are saved not on the basis of works, but on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, So those convictions that Christ is the head of the church, that his word is the authority for the church, and that the gospel is a gospel of grace alone through faith alone based on the finished work of Christ alone, those convictions define the Reformation and those convictions define us as well as Bible-believing Christians. So the reason we get so excited about the Reformation is because of the shared convictions that we saw recovered in church history 500 years ago in the 16th century. Now, what I want to talk about today, and this is lesson six in our series, and again, I just want to remind you that you can find these PowerPoint slides on the Forerunners of the Faith website, forerunnersofthefaith.com. You can find the, uh, the slides there. So if you want this information, it's available for you online. But the reason I mention those convictions is because today I want to show you those same convictions earlier in church history, long before the Protestant Reformation. I think a question that sometimes arises when we think about the Reformation and what we celebrate that took place 500 years ago, a question that sometimes arises is, were those convictions invented by the Reformers, or were they convictions that actually existed in church history long before the Reformation? And that's an important question for us to be able to answer because Roman Catholics and others are going to say, you know, Martin Luther and John Calvin, like they actually invented new doctrine in the 16th century, which would mean that Protestant evangelical convictions are only 500 years old. And if that were true, that would be a really devastating allegation. But what I'm going to show you this morning is that that accusation or that allegation is fundamentally not true because the convictions that we see in the Protestant Reformation were actually convictions that were recovered by the Reformers. They are convictions that were held long, long before the 16th century. And in fact, they're convictions that are found in Scripture itself. I mean, you probably could think immediately of numerous passages of Scripture that affirm the headship of Jesus Christ as the Lord of the church. Even the end of Ephesians chapter 1 makes that so clear. And then you could find passages of Scripture that affirm that Scripture is our highest authority. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Mark chapter 7, when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for elevating tradition above the authority of the Word of God. And you could think, I'm sure, of scriptures that affirm that the gospel is a gospel of grace through faith apart from works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Titus 3, 4 through 7, and many other places in the New Testament. So I mention all of that because obviously, even as we talked about last time, which was two weeks ago, our authority always has to be the word of God. So the reformers were recovering biblical convictions. This morning, because we're talking about church history, I want to show you a place in church history where those very convictions were affirmed and asserted by men who lived after the time of the New Testament, but long before the time of the Reformers. And specifically, this morning, we're going to be looking at two individuals. We're going to be looking at a guy named Augustine and a guy named Chrysostom. And we'll talk a little bit more about who those men were as we go through our time this morning. Now, just to set the stage again, I assume that we might need a little bit of a refresher uh, this morning. So 
We actually started all the way back in lesson one with an introduction, and then lesson two, we looked at the apostolic age. That's the first century of church history. And even going back to that introduction, one of the things that I would recommend when it comes to thinking about church history, sort of a analogy, is to think about church history like a building. It's a building that consists of four floors. Each of those floors represents an epic or an epoch in church history. And on each of those floors, you have five rooms, and each of those rooms represents a century. And that's going to give us 20 rooms or 20 centuries, which is where we're at in the flow of church history. In fact, in just a few more years, we will celebrate the 2000th anniversary of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, which is pretty amazing to consider. But we're here in the first floor, the bottom floor, the first five centuries. This is called the Patristic Era or the Age of the Church Fathers. It starts with the Apostolic Age in the first century. And then in the second century, we have a group called the Apostolic Fathers. Towards the end of the second century, the Apologists and the Polemicists of the third century. And then last time we talked about the Council of Nicaea, that's in the 4th century. And then this morning we're going to talk about things that take place in the 5th century, specifically with regard to Augustine and Chrysostom. Last time we also talked about an individual named Athanasius. He was a 4th century church leader who defended the deity of Christ at the Council of Nicaea. And really, there's many heroes in the halls of church history, but Athanasius, Augustine, and Chrysostom are names that rise to the top of that list for reasons that we're going to talk about this morning. Okay, so if we were uh, looking for the you are here symbol on the mall directory of church history, we are on the bottom floor, fifth room, the fifth century of, again, the age of the church fathers. Throughout this series, we've highlighted three doctrinal pillars. Those three doctrinal pillars actually coincide with the three Reformation convictions that I was talking about earlier. It's the worship of God, that those who are true believers, those who are true believers are characterized by a proper worship of who God is. So we worship Him in spirit and in truth. That refers to purity of devotion and purity of doctrine. And affirming Christ as God and as Lord is part of an affirmation of the proper worship of who Christ is. We also affirm the Word of God as our final authority over all of doctrine and practice. And uh, we'll, um, that really is the Reformation principle of sola scriptura. And then we affirm the work of God and salvation as entirely His work to which our good works our merits contribute absolutely nothing. So the Word of God, the work of God, the worship of God, that's the order I have them here on the slide. But if we invert that order just a little bit, the worship of God is the headship of Christ, the Word of God is the Scripture as our authority, and the work of God is that salvation is by grace through faith apart from our own merit. All right. When we think about these doctrinal pillars, I mentioned Athanasius just a few moments ago. I do think Athanasius, in terms of his contribution to church history, represents one who defended the worship of God, in particular the deity of Jesus Christ, to such an extent that he was willing to be persecuted and personally maligned and even exiled from his own pastorate for a total of 17 years on five different occasions for the sake of defending the deity of Christ. And we talked about that two weeks ago when we were going through lesson five, and I really encouraged and exhorted us to all as believers, think about the fact that we also ought to defend the honor and glory of our Savior whenever we're given opportunity to do so. This morning, however, we're going to focus on two other individuals, Augustine and Chrysostom, and while we'll look at both, again, I called it grace and truth, the grace of the gospel and the truth of the word of God, or the essence of the gospel and the authority of scripture, 
While we'll look at both of those themes in both of these men, I really think Augustine stands out as a defender of the gospel of grace. In fact, in church history, he's known as the doctor of grace. And then Chrysostom stands out as one who was a defender of the truth, the inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture, and we'll see that as well. Now, these two men in particular, Augustine and Chrysostom, it's not just an arbitrary thing for me to say that these men represented Reformation convictions more than a thousand years before the Reformation. It's actually well known that the Reformers were highly influenced by both Augustine and Chrysostom. In fact, when Martin Luther joined a monastery in the year 1505, he joined an Augustinian monastery. And in God's providence, it was the Augustinian influence that helped Martin Luther come to understand the gospel. And in fact, Martin Luther, his understanding of the gospel came from studying the book of Romans primarily. And what we'll find out this morning is that Augustine also came to understand the gospel through the book of Romans. And then Chrysostom was an expositor, uh, expositional preaching. You've probably heard that term before, expository preaching. It's a fancy word that means explanatory. (laughs) We take a text of Scripture, we take it at face value, we interpret it in a literal way, and we explain what it means when we exercise exposition or expository preaching. Our pastor here, of course, Pastor MacArthur, is renowned for being a biblical expositor. John Chrysostom is considered the father of expository preaching. He wasn't the first to preach expositionally, but he was one of the most famous in church history to preach verse by verse using a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. So I guess the big idea this morning is I want you all, or y'all for our new visitors, I want all of you to walk away from this saying, wow, isn't that amazing that the things, the convictions that we hold dear here at Grace Community Church, convictions about the deity and lordship of Jesus Christ, that's Athanasius, convictions about the fact that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works, and convictions about the authority of Scripture and even the way we study the Bible, that we study the Bible going verse by verse, line by line, historical context, logical flow, literal sense, that there were those in church history who exercised those same convictions. They held those same convictions and they put those convictions into practice. Now, at the end of the day, church history is not our authority. Scripture is our authority. So we do what we do because we find it in the Word of God. And I have to emphasize that, can't say that enough. But isn't it encouraging to know that some of the most influential leaders in, in this case, late 4th and early 5th century church history were those who held and championed those same convictions. And I don't expect you to necessarily remember the name Athanasius or Augustine or Chrysostom. You've probably heard of Augustine before or Augustine, as they say it in Florida. There's a place in Florida called St. Augustine. But either way you pronounce it is fine. Whether or not you remember their names is not really that important. What I want you to walk away from this morning is going... Isn't that cool that there were Bible-believing Christians 1,500, 1,600 years ago who looked at the Word of God and walked away with the same convictions that you and I walk away from when it comes to putting Jesus in the proper place, submitting to His Word, and recognizing that we are saved not of ourselves, but by the work of God in all of His grace. Okay, so let's dive in a little bit. We'll start with Augustine. All right, Aurelius Augustinus, or Augustine, as we uh, generally say it. He was born in modern-day Algeria. Uh, His mother was a Christian. Actually, his testimony is quite famous because he wrote a book called uh, Confessions, the Confessions of Augustine, after he was a believer in which he tells us his personal testimony. And what's really interesting about Augustine, I mean, it's interesting because God's going to use him to be arguably the most influential theologian in Western church history 
in at least the first 1,500 years of church history. But Augustine actually was a total rebel uh, growing up. His mom was a Christian, but his dad was not. His grandma, his dad's mother, also lived with the family, and she was not a Christian either. And so his mom, whose name was Monica, had her work cut out for her, living with an unbelieving husband, having an unbelieving mother-in-law, and trying to raise a son who didn't want to hear anything about the Christian faith. And in fact, in spite of the fact that Monica was faithful to teach her son the truth of the gospel, when Augustine got old enough, he walked away from all of it and rebelled against his Christian upbringing. Monica, for her part, was a very faithful prayer warrior. She prayed fervently for the salvation of her son, the salvation of her husband, the salvation of her mother-in-law. And in God's good kindness, he answered those prayers because through her faithful witness and through, of course, the work of the Holy Spirit, her mother-in-law, her husband, and eventually her son all did come to to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, By the way, just one other comment about Monica. I don't know if you ever pay attention to the names of places around here, but Santa Monica is actually named after Augustine's mom. So I like to tell the students in my class, when you're driving down the 405 and you pass the Santa Monica freeway or you drive through Santa Monica on your way to LAX, you're sitting in traffic usually uh, when you get near Santa Monica, you could just, you know, instead of grumbling about the traffic, you can just think about Augustine's mom and about the power of prayer And you can pray for people that you know who don't know the Lord and ask Him to save them. So there you go. I've redeemed Santa Monica, at least in some way. (laughs) In his confessions, Augustine explains that he really was searching for uh, satisfaction and couldn't find satisfaction in anything. He famously says in a prayer to the Lord in the beginning of his confessions, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O Lord. And very much like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, or even like C.S. Lewis in some of his apologetic works, Augustine articulates the fact that life is empty and ultimately meaningless apart from God. And when unbelievers search for satisfaction, what they're searching for ultimately is the satisfaction that only God can provide, and yet they look for it in all the wrong places And that was certainly true of this young man, Augustine, who proclaimed himself to be an atheist, wanted nothing to do with the Christian faith of his mom. In fact, for Augustine, Augustine felt like Christianity was, from a philosophical standpoint, not complex enough, and from a moral standpoint, too overbearing. So, in fact, Stephen Nichols, maybe you've heard about Uh, Stephen Nichols, he is with Ligonier Ministries and has done a lot in church history. In his biography of Augustine, he says that for Augustine, Christianity was both not enough and too much. Like it didn't satisfy his philosophical yearnings, and he felt like it was overbearing in terms of its moral ethic. And so he was searching for life in all the wrong places. He eventually was in a relationship uh, out of wedlock for 15 years. And uh, he and his mistress actually had a son together, all of this while he's running away from God and running as fast as he can towards the world, thinking that the world is going to somehow satisfy the longings of his heart. He pursues rhetoric, which is like oratory, And in the Greek culture, the Greco-Roman culture, those who had great rhetorical and uh, oratorical skill were considered to be the most influential. And so Augustine is essentially looking for fame as a public speaker. So he's pursuing fame. He's pursuing his own lusts. He's running away from God as fast as he possibly can. His uh, desire to learn Uh, rhetoric eventually took him to uh, Milan. And while he was in Milan, 
he encountered a preacher there whose name was Ambrose. Ambrose is another fairly well-known name in church history. Ambrose was actually a governor in Milan, and when the former uh, head pastor, the former bishop of Milan, died, he, was, he got a group of people together and was trying to figure out who should be the next pastor, and he gathered most of the citizens of Milan, and they all demanded that he become the next pastor. So he went from being, this is Ambrose, he went from being the governor to being the pastor, and I just think that's so amazing. Because can you imagine here in California if all of a sudden we were like, we want our governor to be our next pastor? Okay, anyway. (laughs) But isn't that an amazing thing to consider? So Ambrose becomes the pastor of the church in Milan, and uh, he is an avid defender of the Trinity. He ends up being a great pastor, and he's known for being an amazing preacher. He's known for having great oratorical and rhetorical ability. So here's Augustine, this young man who has rebelled against his Christian upbringing. He's living in immorality. He's pursuing his own fame, and he ends up in Milan in God's providence, and he goes, you know what? I'm going to go listen to that famous preacher, not because I'm interested in the content of what he has to say, but because I'm interested in his style, his rhetorical flair, his oratory. Well, Augustine goes for the style and ends up being convicted by the substance. And so it's through the preaching of it's through the preaching of Ambrose and then also the influence of some dear friends that Augustine is again called back to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had looked for philosophical fulfillment in things like Manichaeanism and in Neoplatonism. He found the world's philosophies and false religions to be empty, and the Lord calls him back through the preaching of Ambrose. According to Augustine's own testimony, All of this was flooding his mind, the testimony of his friends, the communication and preaching of Ambrose. And one day he's walking outside and probably from like nearby, I mean, I I picture him being out in the backyard, but that's such a suburban (laughs) anachronism. But in any case, Augustine's outside walking and he hears a child's voice saying, take it up and read it. God in his providence had some kids playing nearby and some kid was like, hey, read what's on that. And Augustine overheard it. And the Spirit of God used that and Augustine went immediately to find a copy of the Scriptures. And this isn't the way that most people normally get saved. This is sort of an extraordinary providence, but he just opens up his Bible. And he happens to open it up. Happens to, right? God is sovereign, sovereign coincidence. He happens to open up his Bible to Romans chapter 13, and he reads these verses from Romans 13, 13 and 14. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And according to Augustine, in his confessions, he says before he had even finished reading verse 14, he was converted. Amazing. It's amazing how the Word of God, through the power of the Spirit of God, can transform the life of an unbelieving sinner. And Augustine himself would talk about the fact that he was like a depraved slave of sin, chasing after his lusts, and God in his sovereignty chased after him and redeemed him, snatched him out of the fire of unbelief. Well, as a new believer, he considered a life of being a monk. Uh, Monasticism was something that had started about a century earlier after the persecutions of the Roman Empire ended. There were some Christians who felt like you know, the world's not persecuting us anymore, so we probably should persecute ourselves, sort of the mindset. And so some of them moved out in the desert and tried to live really 
you know, difficult lives so that they could focus on just spiritual things. Uh, some of them were motivated, I think, for, you know, some of them had good motives, but what monasticism, what monasticism became ended up ultimately being a negative thing. But in any case, Augustine was considering the life of a monastic, but instead believed that the Lord was calling him to pastoral ministry. And so in the year 395, he became uh, a co-bishop, and then eventually the other bishop, the fellow senior pastor, went to heaven, and Augustine became the senior pastor of the church there in Hippo Regis, which is modern-day Algeria, which is also an amazing thing to consider, that one of the greatest Christian theologians of church history came from what is today part of the heart of Muslim North Africa. Uh, Important works include his work on the Trinity, his confessions, his work on the city of God, and we don't have time to go into all of those kinds of things, but um, if you get an opportunity to read some of Augustine's works, I would recommend starting with his confessions because, again, it's a fascinating look at his own personal testimony. All right, as I mentioned already, Augustine was one of the key influences on the Protestant reformers, and specifically with regard to the gospel. Augustine, as I already mentioned, was considered the doctor of grace, and he is considered that because he so clearly articulates the gospel, the good news of salvation, that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works, And he did that specifically, and you'll see that here on the next slide, in response to a false teacher named Pelagius. So Pelagius was a British monk who had come down to Rome from Britain. And in Rome, he saw all of the debauchery of these Roman citizens, especially the sailors and dock workers. He saw the debauchery of their lives and was appalled to find out that they called themselves Christians. And they did that because everybody in the Roman Empire was required to be Christian at this time because of the fact that Christianity was the official religion of Rome going back to the year 380. In any case, Pelagius was, I think, rightly appalled by the fact that there were people professing to be Christians who lived completely immoral lives. But his solution was worse than the problem that he identified. Pelagius began to teach, hey, you know what? In order to incentivize good works, let's make good works the way in which people can attain salvation. Now, Pelagius actually got there by saying people are born basically good. They're born without a sin nature. And because they're born basically good, they don't need a change of nature in order to become Christians. They just need a change of lifestyle. So start doing good works, stop doing bad things, and you'll be saved. Well, that's not the gospel. That's a a false gospel. That is making good works the basis on which you are in a right standing and a saving relationship with God. Augustine recognizing that what Pelagius was promoting was a false gospel, immediately responded and defended the true gospel, that we are born in sin, we have a sin nature, a fallen nature, and as such, we are dead, blind, and completely enslaved in our sin, and we need God to give us new sight, to set us free, and in fact, to give us new life in order for us to be saved. We need a new nature. So this isn't about being good enough to earn heaven. It's about recognizing you're so bad, you could never earn heaven, crying out for mercy, and God in His grace giving you the gift of salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that because we understand the gospel, But at the time, in the early 5th century, the early 400s, Augustine was the one who God used to defend the truth against the false teaching of Pelagius or Pelagianism. I just want to show you a couple of key facets here on Augustine's understanding of the gospel. So here's the principle, and then I'll read you a quote from Augustine. Augustine. 
Sinners are not justified on the basis of their own merit. They are saved entirely by grace. So here's Augustine. We conclude that a man is not justified by the precepts of a holy life, but by faith in Jesus Christ. In a word, not by the law of works, but by the law of faith. Not by the letter, but by the spirit. Not by the merits of deeds, but by free grace. And I love quotes like that because, again, that sounds exactly like the Protestant reformers. Or maybe more to the point, that sounds exactly like the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 and Titus 3 and Galatians 1 and many other places throughout the New Testament. And it's encouraging for us to recognize, oh, wow, what a clear testimony to the gospel all the way back in the early 5th century. Uh, Old Testament saints, likewise, were not saved by works, but rather through faith in Christ. So Augustine says this, of whatever virtue you may de- declare that the ancient righteous people were possessed, the English translation is a little bit archaic here, but whatever righteousness you might ascribe to Old Testament saints, he goes on to say, nothing saved them but the belief in the mediator who shed his blood for the remission of their sins. In other words, Old Testament saints were saved the same way that New Testament believers are, not on the basis of their good deeds, but because they clung in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was only through faith by grace that they were saved. A third principle here, because salvation is by grace and not by works, even the works of sinners, uh, even the worst, excuse me, even the worst of sinners can be saved. So Augustine says, with, <clears throat> with none of their merits going before, you will save them. All in them is rough, all is foul, all to be detested. And though they bring nothing to you, whereby they may be saved, for nothing you will save them. That is, with the free gift of your grace. So Augustine is rightly emphasizing here the fact that sinners, the unredeemed, are totally depraved, right? The idea of total depravity, which means that they are dead in sin, blinded by sin, and enslaved to sin, and can do nothing to change their fallen nature. And so, because they can do nothing, they can bring nothing to God, He is the one who must, entirely of His grace... And through his power and based on the work of his son, he's the one who reaches down and gives spiritual sight, spiritual freedom, spiritual life, and a new nature to the fallen sinner. Another principle here, the gospel of grace precludes anyone from boasting about their salvation. So Augustine says, no man can say that it is by the merit of his own works or by the merit of his own prayers, or by the merit of his own faith, that God's grace has been conferred upon him. Nor suppose that the doctrine is true, which these or those heretics hold, that the grace of God is given us in proportion to our own merit. And he's responding there specifically to Pelagius and the Pelagian heresy. Pelagius, again, taught that you could be saved through your own good works. And Augustine says, that's not what the Bible teaches. And he was right. It's not what the Bible teaches. We're saved apart from our works because our good works as sinners are like filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. So I hope you're encouraged by those quotes. And if you're really interested in seeing more of these kinds of affirmations of the gospel from Augustine and other early church fathers... I had the opportunity a few years ago to put together a book called Long Before Luther, where I have about a hundred of those same kinds of quotes documented in that book. So um, if, if that's of interest to you, that's available to you. Well, that's the gospel. What about the authority of Scripture? Did Augustine affirm the authority of Scripture? Yes, he did. He affirms inerrancy. Because God cannot lie, Scripture is free from error. So here Augustine says, I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I trust firmly. 
Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. So here you have late 4th, early 5th century church father affirming the inerrancy of Scripture. Not only the inerrancy of Scripture, but the authority of Scripture. So Augustine says this, This mediator, that's a reference to Jesus Christ, so the Lord Jesus, having spoken what he judged sufficient first by the prophets, then by his own lips, and afterwards by the apostles, has besides produced the Scriptures, which is called canonical, which has paramount authority and to which we yield assent in all matters. Uh, Quotes like this, I think, are actually really, really helpful when you have conversations with Roman Catholics, because in Roman Catholicism, in fact, it says this in the Catholic Catechism, in Roman Catholicism, Scripture and tradition are considered equal authorities. So Scripture and tradition are on the same level of authority, and then the church is considered the authority above Scripture and tradition specifically the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church. So the Pope, the Cardinals, the magisterium, they decide how to interpret Scripture, and they decide what tradition is authoritative. And what's interesting about that is in appealing to tradition, they appeal to people like Augustine because Augustine and others make up Roman Catholic tradition. As a Protestant, I like pointing out the fact that the people who make up their tradition don't agree with putting tradition on the same level of Scripture or putting the church over either. Instead, Augustine and others would say very clearly, no, 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 no. Scripture is our final authority. The Pope's not the authority. The church isn't the authority. Tradition isn't the authority. Scripture's our authority. So it's kind of fun to use people from their own tradition to undermine the very paradigm that they put forth. All right, the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture contains all that we need for life and godliness. Augustine says, For among the things that are plainly laid down in Scripture are to be found all matters that concern faith and the, matter, and the manner of life. So faith refers to doctrine. That's what we believe. Manner of life refers to application. So the, what you believe and how you live, everything you need for that is found in Scripture. All right, so Augustine demonstrated a clear commitment to the inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture, and that same authority or that same commitment is found in the Protestant Reformation. So again, to come back to what we said earlier, I want you to be encouraged by all of this to recognize that the convictions that characterize the Reformers are convictions that we find in the pre-Reformation period. And I just think that's so important, especially when you have conversations with Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and groups like that. Let's talk a little bit about John Chrysostom. So John Chrysostom was a contemporary of Augustine. Augustine was actually born a few years later. So Augustine was born in the year 354. Chrysostom was born in the year 347. So they were contemporaries. But Augustine was in the West, where they spoke Latin, and Chrysostom was in the East, where they spoke Greek. He actually was born in Antioch, the very same Antioch in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, the Antioch from which Paul and Barnabas left to go on their first missionary journey, the Antioch where believers and followers of Jesus were first called Christians. And uh, Chrysostom actually, Chrysostom's not his last name, we'll find out here in a moment, it's a nickname that was given him, but John Uh, grew up planning to be a lawyer, which is actually another parallel between this period of time and the Reformation. Martin Luther was planning to be a lawyer before he became a monk and ultimately a reformer. John Calvin was planning to be a lawyer before he entered the ministry. John of Antioch also was planning to be a lawyer before God called him to be a pastor. So it's kind of interesting how the Lord works in that way. And even in the life of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was a religious law expert before he became a Christian, and we read about his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He did enter a monastery and lived as a monk for a short period of time and then uh, was called to pastoral ministry, 
and he pastored the church in Antioch for a number of years. He was so eloquent, and his oratory was so compelling that he earned the name, the nickname, Chrysostom, which means golden mouth. So Chrysostom is a nickname, the golden mouth one. And so John with the golden mouth is, again, this great, great preacher. Uh, He was so popular that when the capital city of the Eastern Roman Empire, which is Constantinople, when a position became available for the new head pastor of that church, the Bishop of Constantinople, he was elected to that position. So he moved from Antioch to the capital city of Constantinople, and he preached verse by verse through most of the New Testament. And what's amazing about John Chrysostom is that most of his sermons, they're called homilies, just from a Latin term that means sermon, most of his sermons have survived down to the present, which is really kind of amazing. You can go online and you can find out how a late 4th, early 5th century pastor would preach a text of the New Testament. They've been translated into English. They're really easy to find. In Constantinople, Chrysostom was a fiery preacher who confronted the corruption of the people living in that part of the Roman Empire. Again, remember, the Roman Empire had officially become Christian, and when that happens, kind of like, you know, sometimes like Christian high schools and other places, when everybody's expected to be a Christian, there's a lot of hypocrisy. (laughs) And a lot of people claiming to be a Christian but not actually living out the Christian faith. And so Chrysostom spent a lot of his ministry uh, confronting and exposing and preaching against the hypocrisy of the people in Constantinople. And especially, he would confront the hypocrisy of the queen, the empress of the Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. So Chrysostom, you know, the citizens, they see the way in which the empress is living and flaunting her wealth and everything else. And then they go to church on Sunday and their pastor gets up and he preaches sermons directly aimed against the empress. Well, that obviously didn't go over very well. And Chrysostom ended up getting exiled. At first, the emperor tried to exile him and the people rose up with such a riot that he ended up being able to keep his job, which again, kind of an amazing thing to think about. But then beyond that, uh, because he just would not stop speaking against the luxury and the worldliness and the excess and the corruption of the empress in particular, he ended up being exiled. And in the year 407, from exile, he died. And so the conflict got to the point where he was kicked out of his church and then died in exile. But as I mentioned, many of his sermons have survived, and I just think it's really a lot of fun to, when you're studying your own passage of Scripture for your own quiet time, or perhaps some of you um, are given the opportunity to explain a text of Scripture to a group of people, I think it's a lot of fun to look up that same sermon from, again, a 4th century pastor and see exactly how he articulated the truth that's in that sermon. Now, the application is often going to be aimed, it's always going to be aimed at 4th century Roman citizens. So the application is often going to be very different than the way we would apply those same principles in 21st century America. But the interpretation is often very, very similar to the way in which you and I would interpret the scriptures. And that's really encouraging because Chrysostom was using the same kind of hermeneutic or interpretive grid that you and I would use. Okay, I want to just highlight a few things that Chrysostom says on grace. Um, Before I read these, I have, I think, three of them here. Um, It was probably 10 years ago already. I was teaching a summer school class, and we were going through church history, and I had a guy in the class come up to me 
And he said, hey, I've got a Roman Catholic relative who's visiting me. Would it be okay if I, he's actually studying to be a priest. Would it be okay if I brought him to class tomorrow? And I said, sure. I was glad that he had given me a heads up. So the next day, we were actually talking about Augustine and Chrysostom at that particular point in the curriculum. And so the next day, his family member came and joined him in the class. And I went out of my way to read quotes from Chrysostom on the gospel. Chrysostom probably has two to three dozen really, really amazing quotes about the gospel of grace that were saved through faith apart from works. And so I let Chrysostom preach the gospel to this Roman Catholic. Um, he was training to be a priest. He ended up never becoming a priest, I found out later, so I was glad for that. But it was uh, really kind of fun to just allow a fourth century pastor to preach the gospel. And the reason Chrysostom has so many amazing comments about the gospel is because he preached through most of the New Testament. And because he applied a literal hermeneutic in those parts of the New Testament, he just explains the text. And when he explains the text, he explains it in a way where you're going, yeah, that's exactly what we believe. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. I had a good conversation with him afterwards too. But here's Chrysostom on Romans 3.27. But what is the law of faith? It is being saved by grace. Here Paul shows God's power in that he has not only saved but has even justified and led unbelievers, the sinners, led us to boasting, and this without needing works, but looking for faith alone or faith only. Here you have another quote from him on Colossians 1. To have brought humanity more senseless than stones to the dignity of angels simply through bare words and faith alone without any hard work is indeed a rich and glorious mystery. It is just as if one were to take a dog consumed with hunger and disease, the mange, foul and loathsome to see, and not so much as able to move, but lying passed out. In other words, sinners are like dead dogs. And make him all at once into a human being and to display upon him the royal throne. Now, I realize the English translation is a little archaic there, but what Chrysostom is saying is he's saying, you were all like, and I'm including myself in this, we were all like dead dogs. And God, in his grace, came along and raised us up to new life and not just made us alive, but transformed us into new creatures in Christ and didn't just transform us into new creatures in Christ, but set on us every blessing and all of the riches of Christ that are in the heavenlies. I love that. That's a great illustration. Just one more here. This is from 1 Timothy. This is from his exposition of 1 Timothy 1. He's talking about how the gospel, a gospel of grace, seems too good to be true. He says, For as people on receiving some great good and they ask themselves if it is not a dream as not believing it. In other words, it seems too good to be true. So it is with respect to the gifts of God. What then was it that was thought so unbelievable? It seemed to them, that is to self-righteous, legalistic unbelievers, it seemed to them incredible that a person who had misspent all of his former life in vain and wicked action should afterwards be saved by his faith alone. On this account, Paul says it is a saying to be believed. So again, just another wonderful affirmation of the gospel. And Chrysostom, because he preached in Greek, um, I would have to look at the exact cognate here, but when it says faith alone, it's, um, well, <laughs> I just realized the faith alone, sola fide is Latin, not Greek. Okay, great. Awesome. <laughs> Glad I had that moment. Um, <laughs> I just want to talk for the last few minutes that we have about uh, Chrysostom and his commitment to Scripture. So when it comes to the gospel, and there, there are some amazing Latin commentators who use the words faith alone in the 4th and 5th centuries. That's where I was going with that until halfway through, after I had already started my sentence, I realized, wait, Chrysostom is Greek, and the Greek word for faith is pistuo, not fide, but in any case. 
All right, Chrysostom and truth. Did Chrysostom also hold to the inerrancy of Scripture? Absolutely. This is a uh, sermon on John 17. Your word is truth. That is, there is no falsehood in it, and all that it says or said in it must happen. Authority. Did he affirm the authority of Scripture? Yes. These then are the reasons, but it is necessary to establish them all from Scripture. He's talking about reasons why you hold a certain view. You must establish your reasoning from Scripture to show the exactness or show uh, with exactness that all that has been said on this subject is not an invention of human reasoning, but the very sentence of the scriptures. And then with regard to sufficiency, Chrysostom says this, for this is the exhortation of the scripture given that the man of God may be rendered perfect or complete by it. This is a comment on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Without this, therefore, he cannot be complete or perfect. You have the scriptures, he says, in place of me. It's Paul. If you would learn anything, you may learn it from them. So we go to the word of God for all that we need for life and godliness. And then we're almost at the end here. Just uh, with regard to the clarity of scripture, I think this is so interesting. And so maybe we'll end with this slide. That Chrysostom articulates a hermeneutic, that's an approach to the interpretation and study of Scripture that utilizes what we would call a literal, meaning you take the plain sense, historical, meaning you consider the context, grammatical, meaning you consider the flow of the argument, approach to interpreting the text. And so he says this, we ought to unlock the passage by first giving a clear interpretation of the words we must not attend to the words only, but turn out or turn our attention to the sense and learn the aim of the speaker and the cause of the occasion, the cause and the occasion. And by putting all these things together, we will turn out the hidden meaning. By hidden meaning there, he doesn't mean some sort of Gnostic meaning. What he means is when you look at a passage of scripture and you're not sure what it says, the meaning seems to be hidden to you, how do you unlock what the passage means? By studying the words, by studying the author's intent, by studying the occasion, that's the historical background, by studying the cause, you, by studying the sense of the argument, you put all of these things together, and by studying what the author was trying to say, you can uncover what at first seemed like a hidden meaning. I love that because that's the same approach to the text that we would apply in seeking to turn out the meaning of what the text says. So putting it all together, and we'll end with this slide, I'm going to repeat what I said earlier. I just think it's so amazing to realize that all the way back in the late 4th, early 5th century, there are believers in Jesus Christ, leaders in the church, who are going to affirm that Christ is the head of the church, guys like Athanasius, that the gospel is a gospel of grace through faith apart from works, guys like Augustine, and that the word of God is inerrant, sufficient, and that we unlock what it says to us by studying it using the normal tools of interpretation. That should be a great encouragement to you because those same convictions are your convictions if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for the testimony of your work in the life of Augustine, saving him from a life of sin, your work in the life of Chrysostom, converting him from a man who was pursuing a legal profession to being a man who would study the truth of your word. And for both of these men, using them as lights to the truth, such that 1,200 years later, Martin Luther and John Calvin would look back on Augustine and Chrysostom and see their influence as a major, major influence in their own lives as they look 
passed them to the Scriptures to see those same truths taught on the pages of the New Testament. May we be those whose convictions are defined by the worship of your Son, the Lord Jesus, by submitting to your Word as the truth that governs our lives, and by recognizing that it's not through our good works, but entirely through the finished work of your Son that we can be reconciled to you. We pray all of this in His name. Amen.